0: My name
1: is Francis Tolliver I come from Liverpool Two years ago the war was waiting for me after school To Belgium and to Flanders To Germany to here I fought for king and country I love dear It was Christmas in the trenches Where the frost so bitter hung. The frozen fields of France were still, no Christmas song was sung. Our families back in England were toasting us that day. Their brave and glorious lads so far away. I was lying with my messmate on the cold and rocky ground. When across the lines of battle, the most peculiar sound Says I now, listen up me boys each soldier strained to hear as one young German voice sang out so clear He's singing bloody well, you know my partner says to me Soon one by one, each German voice joined in in harmony The cannons rested silent Gas clouds rolled no more as Christmas brought us respite from the war. As soon as they were finished and reverent pause was spent, God rest ye merry gentlemen. Struck up some lads from Kent Oh, the next they sang was steely not Tis silent night, says I And in two tongues one song filled up that sky There's
0: someone coming towards us
1: The front-line sentry cried. All sights were fixed on one lone figure Trudging from their side His truce flag, like a Christmas star, shone on that plain so bright as he bravely strode unarmed into the night. Then, one by one on either side, walked into no man's land. With neither gun nor bayonet, we met there hand to hand. We shared some secret brandy wished each other well And in a flare-lit soccer game We gave them hell We traded chocolates, cigarettes And photographs from home These sons and fathers Far away from families of their own Young Sanders played his squeeze box And they had a violin This curious and unlikely band night stole upon us And France was France once more With sad farewells we each began To settle back to war But the question haunted every heart That lived that wondrous night Whose family have I fixed within my sights It was Christmas in the trenches Where the frost so bitter hung Frozen fields of france were warmed as songs of peace were sung for the walls they'd kept between us to exact the work of war had been crumbled and were gone for. Well, my name is Francis Tolliver In Liverpool I dwell Each Christmas comes since World War I I've learned its lessons well But the ones who call the shots Won't be among the dead and lame And on each end of the rifle We're the same
0: And welcome to Here We Stand. It's Christmas Day, 2022. That song is very personal, because when I was eight years old, I was in Edmonton with my grandparents, and I sat there by the Christmas tree, and my grandfather, Ross, Anna, told me how he took part in that during World War One. This song and the show is dedicated to my grandfather, Ross, and to all of those who established peace that day in the midst of war. They didn't wait for it to be handed down. They created the peace themselves, direct action. It's also dedicated to an unknown German soldier, without whom you wouldn't be listening to me today or to the show, because that soldier, and I think not accidentally, found Grandfather when he was wounded and dying in the middle of a shell hole. Less than a year later, after they had fraternized and shared drinks in no man's land, that German soldier found Grandpa and brought him in to a Canadian Army field hospital, or otherwise I wouldn't be here today. Neither would any of my offspring. So I want to talk today about that and especially thank that unknown German and his descendants, not only for our lives, but for giving us a practical example of how we bring about change, how we start revolutions, if you like. Because revolutions start when armies go home. In the middle of wars, the power of a state rests on their ability to control violence and hence control everyone around them and their own people. When the soldiers themselves say, nope, the war's over, it isn't just one day of fraternizing at Christmas, folks, because don't forget, yeah, they fraternized at Christmas and then they went back to killing each other, although in some cases, like Grandpa was telling me, they deliberately shot high after sharing drinks and jokes with the Germans in no man's land, they deliberately didn't shoot at each other. That was a common practice. But the war carried on for years after that, except the example on the Eastern Front, where the Russian and German soldiers, when they fraternized, then turned around and went home and started two great revolutions, the Russian and the German revolutions of 1917 and 18 that overthrew monarchy in both countries. And so that example of direct action is something I want to talk about today, because our Topic is called A Revolutionary Reversal, Remembering and Living the Forgotten Message of Christmas. Now, it's kind of like this whole story of what happened there in the middle of war, and it happens all the time in wars. If you know any veterans, they'll tell you about really similar incidents. And I like to use that as a metaphor for the war we're always in. People getting up out of the trenches that we've been placed in, or placed ourselves in, and fraternized with the so-called enemy. Because that story, like Jesus birth story and his whole message and life. It shouldn't be sentimentalized. It shouldn't be romanticized and turned into a nice comfy feeling because then it loses its revolutionary message, which is that peace, when declared by the soldiers themselves, always lead to fundamental change. It begins with a refusal to fight each other anymore. Fraternizing is the first revolutionary act demonstrating that we can govern ourselves. The old saying is when armies collapse, revolutions begin. So, when using that as a metaphor for everything we're doing, when we start governing ourselves, we create the change. We not only end the wars, we can end taxes, we can end the evil laws and the genocidal systems that we've campaigned against for so many years, and which is affecting all of us now with the COVID police state. This show has been dedicated for eight years now. It's the length of time of the Republic of Canada as well, and. It's been dedicated to organizing, training, and mobilizing people to bring that change about. But that change begins first within ourselves. And it's a question I often ask people when we get together for the first time. They say, exactly how fed up and revolted are you? You've got to be revolted, sickened by this system, because it's only when you're truly revolted that you can revolt. Revolutions start in your own hearts when you're just not capable anymore of living under the old status quo. And so because of that, you're driven every day to search for something better, to create that new land and fight to create it, rather than just talk about it or imagine it. What do we mean by revolutionary reversal? What does it have to do with Christmas? Well, don't forget that reversal is at the heart of the real meaning of December 25th, which, of course, wasn't Jesus' actual birthday. It's rather, it was the thing called the Roman Festival of Saturnalia. So on Saturnalia it was, a, it was a, one of the most important festivals in the Roman calendar. And what happened in Saturnalia was it was a great social reversal. On that day, the Roman slave owners would become the slaves. And the slaves would guard the clothing and status of the rulers to show that behind all the pomp and power, all of us are the same. It's like he said in the song, on each end of the rifle, Were the same. And the illusions of riches and class difference and convention and power, all of that fades away. And they wanted to symbolize that. Now, what I find really interesting is that that is the day the early Christians chose to symbolize the birth and the message of Jesus Yeshua. And I think that's no accident. His spirit reverses our social reality. Remember the saying, make the last first and the first shall be last? It's a great leveling and equality. You, you hear about all the time in the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mount, John the Baptist saying, all the high places will be made low and the low high, till all mankind shall see God together. It's that vision that he embodied in what he called all the time the kingdom of heaven. Or in his Aramaic language, it actually was the realm of eternity. It's a world turned upside down by divine love. Like when enemies become friends across battlefields, and end wars and oppression, not just for a day, but permanently. And like I said, that when that fraternization happened, not just for a day, but all over the Eastern Front, that's when the Russian and German revolutions began. It triggered it. And that Christmas miracle has to take root and take political and social flesh. It can't just be an individual example. We've got to generalize it so that we can say, look... As has happened before us in our past, we can then overturn the world of kings and bankers and priests of the rule of a few over the many. That's what love commands. Now, it's interesting, too. Right after that, in my hometown of Winnipeg, there was something, another fact, pretty much rewritten out of Canadian history, is something called the Winnipeg General Strike. It happened right in the wake of the Russian Revolution. And all guess who led a lot of the, the, the strike action there? was soldiers, disabled soldiers who'd come home from the war, who'd been ripped off, wouldn't be given the right pensions. They revolted. They took up arms, literally. And the Winnipeg General Strike was the first of its kind anywhere in Canada. And, you know, again, there's that element of the people who've been through the battle, who see the system for what it is. And a soldier or a poor person or a native person, they know the score. They want to end it not only because they, they want to, but they have to. They see there's no alternative for them. So that's the way things happen, and that's why the the story of that Christmas in the Trenches has, just like the Gospel and the story of the birth narrative of Jesus, it's got fundamental revolutionary implications for all of us and in all the work we do. Now, I'm addressing this today, of course, not to a general populace. I don't think that if you were part of the general herd out there, Um, you would be listening to the show in the first place. I'm talking to those of you who have stuck with this movement, those of you like my good friends in many countries who are listening to this who are part of our growing Republic Alliance movement, taking direct action on the ground. People who realize that, you know, this this fight back we face all the time when our natural impulse to hold the world in common and take back the world – it comes up against the vested interests all the time, the satanic ruler of this world and the few who try to rule over all of us. They take that message and they fog it. They turn it into religion. They dulled its revolutionary spirit and they turned it into this religious cult holiday of Christmas, which in practice is just an orgy of selfishness and greed, but also of murder, murder of the innocent. You know, we heard last week that the, the birth story of Jesus begins with mass murder ordered by King Herod to kill all the firstborn because he's paranoid about this uh, Jesus fellow who the prophets say are going to overturn his kingdom. Similarly, this whole regime of Christian-based genocide, for 1946, Christmas Eve, Canada's West Coast, a little girl called Maisie Shaw was kicked to her death by United Church Minister Alfred Caldwell at the Albany Residential School. Now, what happened there was... Maisie Shaw was kicked to her death down a flight of stairs by Alfred Caldwell as they were singing Christmas carols upstairs. Now, Harriet Nahaney witnessed it, and when she spoke of that at our first protest at Christmas in 1995, it blew open the whole lid of that genocide in Canada. Harriet was a witness, but picture for a moment, Maisie Shaw lying dead on a basement floor at the hands of a Christian, while upstairs other Christians are singing hymns pretending to honor Jesus. And that, for me, is a metaphor and a symbol of our whole society, especially Canada in this waning year of 2022, because that's the upstairs-downstairs reality of murder lying beneath the appearance of our whole so-called civilization. The truth is, and here's the key for a lot of you who are listening into this, and want to know how to take action, because that's the purpose of the show, not just to inspire you, but to try to organize and activate you. The truth is that how you view the the world and what you're willing to do and risk to change the world depends very much on whether you're upstairs or downstairs. And that's why 27 years ago this week when Harriet and I rallied for the first time and brought this truth out, and she talked about the murder of Maisie Shaw, the whole movement and revolution that's launched, including the common law revolution all over the world now, that's being sustained and fed all the way along, not by people upstairs the comfortable ones who believe all the illusions of society and don't know or don't want to know that there's murder of children going on in the basement while they sing their nice hymns. No, it's being sustained by people of the basement. Those of us who have either been born there or thrown down there, like in my case, those of us who've seen and borne in our own scars the criminal nature of this monstrous system that people dare to call civilization, we've seen it up close, we see how it kills our friends and our family members, And as we downstairs people who have died to overturn that whole sick arrangement, people like my friends Harriet, Bingo Dawson, William Coombs, Harry Wilson, all of the people who died, homeless Native people, died to bring up this truth. And because they weren't supported, and because they acted on their own, and that truth was buried again, why do you think we have the COVID measures today? Why do you think you're all being forced to take measures that have been happening to Indigenous people all over the world for centuries, and in Canada since 1874, because we didn't stand together, because we didn't get out of our trenches and join hands with people who we taught, were taught were the enemy. Now, that upstairs-downstairs world, I think it also reflects our personal dissociation. It's required It's by this system that we be dissociated. We live alongside and support its murder even as we condemn it. We pay for it even while we protest against it. Revolutionary reversal means we get rid of all the stairs, upstairs and downstairs. We get rid of our personal dissociation. We become free, integrated people who say, yes, we've got the blood of innocent people on our hands. We live alongside and profit from murder every day. We've got to pull the plug on it. We can't live under it anymore. Now we organize and take action. And like we've talked about before, it's that organization and action that's lacking. People seem frozen. That's why, you know, at this time of year, when people glibly utter words like genocide and police state, they're not abstractions. They're very real and personal for some of us who have felt the blows. I mean, one by one, I've seen my family and friends fallen, taken away. And, you know, the, 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 the fact that there's still a few fighting is something that is buried at every moment. Every time we try to do something, it gets whacked down again. These things go in waves, and it's important to hang in through the long nights. A few of us who are veterans who remember, keep that light going during the long night because the dawn comes again always, and we will then light the torches of the new generation off the light that we've sustained, and that's really our purpose. And I say that to all of you, and I think some of you know who I'm talking to. I don't want to say over the air, but you know who I'm, I'm addressing in this. People almost willing to give up some days because you're so alone. You're fighting so much alone, you face betrayal at every moment, all the time. It's a constant part of our menu. But you carry on anyway. And that's why the real reversal is the very fact that we're continuing. And as uh, one of my old friends once said, who I knew in my teens, Joe Hensby, he said, talking don't do shit. Which is true. You've got to get out of the trenches and leave. You've got to reverse this situation, the power arrangement. You've got to reclaim our world, and you've got to redeem it. We're going to hear a song about that at the break, actually. Beautiful song called uh, Let America Be America Again. But let's talk frankly for a minute. To take that action, it isn't simply action we need, because anybody can act. With the blindfold on, you don't act for very long. We have to recover imagination and not just memory but the vision that comes out of that. Otherwise, it's pointless to talk about activism. We find that it takes a great shock, almost an exorcism to break people out of that. Some of us come naturally to it. I know one of my friends, and you know who you are, listening from Australia right now. You're one of those few people who are determined to carry on. People like Mary Kelly in Dublin, Ireland, who this old woman would get up. She, I saw her do this in Pro Cathedral. She'd walk to the, walk to the front of the church on Christmas service, and she, started, she seized the pulpit from the priest and started talking about the Vatican policy of protecting child rapists and killers. The priest tried to grab her, and she, he cold-cocked the priest. She cold-cocked the priest right there, knocked him cold, and carried on talking. That's the kind of determination we need. We just can't stop. And it's those people who just are incapable of stopping. They're the ones who carry on. You keep that torch alive. But the question is, why is that quality not in more of us? It isn't just fear. It isn't just programming. There's a question of character, and the character is different in a lot of people. And to work close with people, you realize, and a good organizer does that. They don't talk. You can't organize anything over the Internet or by phone call, ever. You don't do it in Zoom calls. You do it face-to-face and getting to know people, getting familiar, building relationships, knowing each other from what we've done, not what we've said, but who we are on the ground. That's the sort of thing lacking so much these days. And, you know, this is um, perhaps self-evident. I don't know. Um, One of the things that I think is uh, especially apropos about this discussion today is this is very much aimed at certain people. Now, I know we've got a lot of American listeners, about half of my books, and things are bought by people in America. Um, And this call to leave the trenches and join hands with the enemy, that's going directly to the soldiers of the Ukraine and the soldiers of Russia. I mean, guys, you did it historically in 1917. You walked away from the trenches. Do it again. Go home, both of you. You know, I remember when 1914 started, and all this patriotic fervor, George Bernard Shaw uh, was interviewed, and they said, well, what do you think should go on in this war? And George Bernard Shaw said, soldiers on both sides should shoot their officers and go home. And, you know, that's the case in any war. And it's when we go beyond talk to actually organizing that. That's when you threaten the system in a big way because, like I said, the state's power rests completely on their exercise of violence. And when we get to the hearts and minds of the soldiers and the police and the people with their finger on the trigger, their system is gone. And that's what we've got to aim for all the time. But ultimately it doesn't happen unless we have the vision. And the vision of who we are, really, what, what we have lost in, in many ways and so, uh, remember, as we go to the break, those two images, getting up and leaving the trench as a metaphor of what we need to do, not only stop shooting at each other, stop feeding their systems, stop paying the taxes, stop voting, establish your own laws. That's the whole basis of what we're doing in the Kamala Republic and the assemblies and everything. But we face the hard reality that when we do that on the ground, we are facing increasing attacks all over. And that's why we emphasize a very flexible approach, like Sun Tzu said. Never attack openly. Always maneuver around the bigger opponent. When the assemblies don't work, you fall back on your cell groups. We are forming now, in in a lot of places, action cell groups to take direct action, not to announce what you're doing, to have three or five people strike out of the darkness and then fade back again. That's what a guerrilla army does. We're teaching people those methods. And especially in the approaching uh, season, January 15th, the anniversary of the Republic of Canada the dates in February, the 25-year anniversaries of the launching of our campaign of genocide. All of that is going to go on alongside practical workshops, training workshops, what you can do in your community to take back power, especially in a place on the front line like Australia and Canada, which have been targeted in a big way by China because of its resources and geopolitically its location. So to keep in mind, knowing your enemy... China and the Vatican, they're the rising powers of the corporatocracy. The Vatican Bank is funding it, China's leading it, striking at those powers, especially the Vatican, that's one of the weak links, and we're going to talk about that in the second part of the show. A little bit of food for thought there, but don't forget, without the vision of who we are, what kind of society we want to create, then the action doesn't amount to anything, because automatically, unconsciously, you recreate the conditions that you were born in. Automatically, unless you acquire a new mind. And we find the new mind is acquired through doing, not through talking. Because, you know, it's the old adage, when you get 20 people in a room talking, you get 20 different positions, 20 different truths. There's no basis of unity. But when 20 people act together, they have the same experience. They have the same cop club smashing on their head. They have the same victimization that follows. And that's needed. It's only when you get the black eye that you start learning lessons, and that's the hard reality. We welcome those opportunities. We welcome that conflict because that's how we grow and change and mature. That's how we learn the nature of the system we're under. That's how we realize we're living in the downstairs now, people, not the upstairs anymore. Fortunately, we've been booted out, and now we can recreate it, pull down the whole building. And the more of us who do it, the more successful we'll be and the less violent it is. Okay, I'm going to rest my voice. What you're going to hear now is a really amazing thing by uh, a woman, a street poet called Abhima Kumpson. She uh, said this in Union Square in New York City, Christmas 2014. Uh, she's a group, well, part of a group called Poets in Unexpected Places. They're like guerrilla armies. They show up out of nowhere and start telling their poem, poems. And this one is called Let America Be America Again. And we'll be back after
2: be America again. Let it be the dream it used to be. Let it be the pioneer on the plain seeking a home where he himself is free. America never was America to me. Let America be the dream the dreamers dreamed. Let it be that great strong land of love where never kings connive nor tyrants scheme. Let any man be crushed by one above. It never was America to me my land be a land where liberty is crowned with no false patriotic wreath. But opportunity is real, and life is free. Equality is in the air we breathe. There's never been equality for me, nor freedom in this homeland of the free. Say, who are you who mumbles in the dark? And who are you that draws your veil across the stars? I am the poor white and pushed apart. I am the Negro bearing slavery scars. I am the red man driven from the land. I am the immigrant clutching the hope I seek and finding only the same old stupid plan of dog eat dog, of mighty crush the weak. I am the young man full of strength and hope, tangled in that ancient endless chain of profit, power, gain, of grab the land, of grab the gold, of grab the ways of satisfying need, of work the men, of take the pay, of owning everything for one's own greed. I am the farmer, bondsman to the soil. I am the worker, sold to the machine. I am the negro, servant to you all. I am the people, humble, hungry, mean, hungry, yet today despite the dream, beaten, yet today, oh pioneers, I'm the man who never got ahead the poorest worker bartered through the years. Yet I'm the one who dreamt our basic dream in the old world while still a serf of kings, that dreamt a dream so strong, so brave, so true, that even now its mighty daring sings in every furrow turned, in every brick and stone that's made America the land it has become. For I'm the one, who sailed those early seas in search of what I meant to be my home. I'm the one who left dark Ireland's shore and England's grassy lay and Poland's plain and torn from black Africa's strand I came to build a homeland of the free. The free? Who said the free? Not me. Surely not me. The millions on relief today. The millions shot down when we strike. The millions who have nothing for our pay. For all the dreams we've dreamed and all the songs we have sung. For all the hopes we've held and all the flags we've hung. The millions who have nothing for our pay except a dream that's almost dead today. Oh, let America be America again, the dream that never has been yet, and yet must be the dream where every man is free, the land that's mine, the poor man's. Indians, Negroes, me, who made America? Whose sweat and blood, whose faith and pain, whose hand at the foundry, whose plow in the rain must bring back our mighty dream again? Sure, call me any ugly name you choose. The steel of freedom does not stain. From those who live like leeches on the people's lives, we must bring back our land again, America. Oh yes, I say it plain, America never was America to me. And yet I swear this oath, America will be out of the wreck and ruin of our gangster death, the rape and rot and graft of stealth and lies. We the people must redeem the land, the plants, the mines, the rivers, the mountains, the endless plain, all, all stretch of these great green states and make America again. to you.
0: That was actually written by Langston Hughes, who was a Harlem poet in the '30s and '40s and uh, and after. And it's amazing watching that um, that clip of her. She's standing in Union Square, and there's all these people going by, all these you know people caught up in the Christmas buying madness. And uh, there's a few people watching her. And this one guy is standing there, he is so grooving. I mean, he is just ecstatic by what she's saying. He, she's, he's got it. He's got the message, right? You know, we must bring back our mighty dream again and redeem the land, all of us. Redeem it. Reclaim it all. No more passive existence, you know, waiting on for others to act for us. It, you can see the spark going on in him, it, and it's beautiful. It's like what I, I used to see sometimes in... Um, Some of the, they called them healing circles, which is a bullshit name. Nobody ever heals from this. They recover a bit, but um, they were talking circles of people who had been tortured by these churches and seen their friends killed. And you'd see all of a sudden this strange thing happen because nobody wanted to talk about what really happened. You know, the real pain, like all of us. Nobody wants to talk about the real shit that happens to us. We don't even have the words. I mean, if you ask me right now to say, how do I feel tonight? Christmas Eve, you know, this time of year, I lost my children. A lot of bad stuff happened, right? I can't put it into words. There's no way you can articulate your pain. It's too sacred. Just so like, you know, the, the profane and the, and the sacred, they're all, they don't have words. That's why one of the reasons I stopped praying when I was a minister, for people in church would say, look, student silence. There are no words for what's true, right? All you can do is embody it and live it and let your life and action be your words, and um, and so, uh, now I lost my train of thought. That's what you just sing about <laughs> rambling, especially when you're 66. You know, you sometimes kind of lose it. So, anyway, um, it's all connected, though, right, folks? It's all good. So, anyway, uh, oh, yes, the talking circles. The, um, all of a sudden, somebody would say something, and they'd have the courage to break the ice and say no. I saw this person get tortured. This is what they did to me with the electric cattle prod. Remember when William Coombs talked about them doing that to him? Suddenly, it was almost like this relief shot through everybody, and they all began to talk. Somebody had to break the ice, right? Somebody had to say the truth, and the spark went on in them. And then, what do you think allowed us to occupy those churches, those people? When they found that power in themselves, they weren't afraid of anything. What else could the system do to them? It's like how I feel now. What else are you going to do, folks? Bring it on. You know, and when people often say, how do you keep going? Well, you just keep going because that's not only all that's left in your life, but that's all that should be in your life. How can you live alongside this stuff and not change it radically? So it doesn't happen again. So children aren't being killed as we speak anymore, right? So anyway, it's just common sense, but you you can share that spark face-to-face, hand-to-hand, just like Grandpa did out there in no man's land with the German soldiers in 1915, and then his life saved by one of them. And, you know, I wish I knew the name of that German family. I'd go to them and uh, not only thank them, but say, look, um, it's still the case now. We've got to keep doing this, folks. End the war on ourselves, and then it'll land around us. So um, on that note, one of the things I wanted to do was, we've got about, I don't know, 20 minutes. No, no. Yes, 20 minutes. There is one of the things I wanted to share, and it was, you You might have seen in the notice about the show today. I've written a new book, again, 20, number 22. I always tend to write these books at Christmas for some reason. I guess it's part of the season, but my experience. And uh, this one is called A Tale of Two Brothers. And if you look at the last three books I've written, one has been, they're kind of like a trilogy. I'd, I wrote a book, first one, kind of the overview, it's called Memoirs of a Revolutionary. Look at the last 50 years and what's happened in the world, politically and economically. How did we get here to this corporatocracy? Memoirs of a Revolutionary. But then there are other, these ladies to I wrote, The Land of Liberty. It's really a compendium. It's, it's a not-so-much fictitious novel, semi-fictitious novel, about our added history, past, present, and future. My... Ancestor Philip Bennett, who took up arms in the first rebellion in Canada to create a republic in 1837 in Ontario, what was Upper Canada, and in Quebec, Lower Canada. And it's about Philip's life and what he went through, and how it led to our family tradition, and what happened to me, and then what that leads to in the future, under a possible Republic of Canada. And it was kind of like the need to fly like an eagle, like my namesake, Eagle Strong Voice, overhead and look. Realizing that time and space have no meaning, ultimately, is the same tune playing itself out all the time, embodied in different people. And we, once we stand at the center of that power, we have great control over situations around us. Something you learn, you either get killed by this stuff, or you learn from it and become more than who you are. So this third book, even more personal, is called The Tale of Two Brothers. It's about me and my older brother, Bill, Bill Jr., and... It's interesting because I've been wanting to write this for a while because my brother is in many ways the antithesis of me, although we have a real commonality at the same time. It's like that, that dialectic, right, in the world and in us, the union of opposites. But um, what Bill is, is he's a retired corporate CEO guy. He was, believe it or not, he was the uh, CEO of a biotech company uh, with close ties with to George Bush, uh, both Bushes. In fact, Bill got invited to the Bush inauguration. And uh, he was part of a thing called Genentech. It was tied into the whole Pfizer and, you know, biotech, pharmaceutical, bioweapons, garbage, all of that stuff. So I remember Bill and I, whenever, you know, I mean, we haven't seen each other in years, but we'd get together at family, uh, you know, events. And he he didn't like talking politics or anything because he had this guilty conscience. Like a lot of the people in that, you know these multimillionaires with this authority they're really troubled people if they have any shred of conscience left some of them are functional psychopaths and those are the successful ones the, the billionaires the ones you see on tv the ones who are call themselves presidents or heads of corporations you know i mean these guys are pretty much beyond the pale but the lower level guys who you know tried to who sold out to thinking they could get you know all this worldly advantage I remember uh, Bill and my sister Deirdre and I were sitting there, and and I looked at him, and he seemed like 80 years old. And I'm thinking, here, I'm broke. I'm I'm penniless and blacklisted, and I feel I'm the one laughing. I'm the one who feels good, and Bill is sitting there all troubled. Well, I wanted to embody that contradiction in the story, and the tale of two brothers is really kind of coming clean about the dark side of that side of my family and their involvement in what was called Western Canada Water, which I'll call Glacier Water in the book. And it's ties with the Chinese, and it's ties with buying off federal politicians and making inside deals with the provincial government of Bill Vanderzam for exclusive water bulk shipments, uh, freezing out all our, their corporate partners, takeover by the mob that happened, um, all of that stuff. I mean, all of the stuff that, because they have money, they buried it. And it's one of the things that caused a break in our family because Bill knew that if I discovered all of this stuff, I would be out there talking about it. And of course, you know, it's it was, it's kind of like watching the Godfather movies. You know, the family loyalty is everything, and if you deviate from the family loyalty, you're out. And that's pretty much what happened to me. I was very much ostracized, not only after I got fired by the United Church, but as I carried on in this, I could see the look in Bill's eyes. He's thinking, "Well, geez, if this guy's..." gone to the mattress over the United Church genocide. Think of what he might do over this criminality that we're involved in here, folks. So, um, you know, one of the, the stories I liked is former uh, Prime Minister Brad Mulroney was a secret inside. He got all these inside shares in their company. And, um, you, know, they, you know, he got John Reynolds, the federal environment minister, to ease off on the... Environmental regulations on this Western Canada water company, in return, they got shares in the company. You know, the old payoff because Mulroney used to require 15% personal kickback from every government contract. And, um, you know, so all of that stuff is contained in his story. And I I talk about it using pseudonyms, of course, although. Now you know they're not pseudonyms anymore, now that you've heard the story. So I expect there to be some kind of response. The, the book is out now. It's called The Tale of Two Brothers, and, and it's at Amazon. You can look it up. It comes out this week. Now, um, I expect to get contacted by lawyers, because if you pull the dragon's tail too close, you get a reaction. But that's good. That's what we want, because as happened with the church by them overreacting, they expose themselves even more, and they just bring about their own downfall. So you want to provoke the money. You want to poke the dragon. And I'm doing this because water export and all the stuff they were involved in was the entry point for China and in, into British Columbia. It's why the corporatocracy and the Chinese are taking over to the extent they're doing in Canada and furthering the genocide because the people behind the, the disappearance of Native families now are the Chinese There are CMP off-duty death squads. We've got it all documented. So I figured now is the time to come clean about what I have known all along and have talked about but has been pretty much buried. I wanted to put it in book form, and that's why I wrote Tale of Two Brothers. I hope you get it and read it and recognize that it's only part of the story. I intend to tell more of it. Um, And in this way, calling on my own family to start doing the right thing. You know, you can ostracize me and the truth all you like. It doesn't change the reality of what you've done. And so I wanted to use this form as a way to speak to them about that. I'm going to send personally autographed copies to Bill, of course, and to others in our family who haven't spoken to me in years. As a matter of fact, get this, they didn't even tell me my mother was dying, our mother, and uh, I had to learn from one of my children that she had died I still don't even know where she's buried. I mean, this is the ostracism that happens to all of us when we take a stand. You know, the prophet Jeremiah uh, says in the Bible, our greatest enemy will be those of our own house. And that's what happens. It's not that only that you're approached. Your family members are approached and, you know, separated and paid off, like my wife and was paid to leave me and then start a whole campaign to make sure I never see my kids at the behest and in the pay of the United Church, part of a criminal conspiracy to cover up their mass murder of children. They even admitted that later in court. But they use the ones closest to you to get at you. And that's why once you take on this work, you go alone. You're alone, only with the higher power on your side and people of the basement who come forward and stand with you. That's how revolutions happen, only when we're willing to take that risk. And, you know, when Jesus says in the Bible, my brother and sister and mother are those who do the will of God, when his own family feel that the, he's rejected them, which he did, of course. It's true for all of us. So I know in all of you, in your loneliness, when you realize, look, what happened to my family, what happened to my ties, they're meant to fall away. Your real family step forward. Doing the right thing is something you've always had to do, and that's kind of our bottom line. So I wanted to say all that, uh, just to explain what I've been doing with those books, but The last ten minutes, I want to also uh, share something personal. It's in one of my books called The Border, and uh, it was called Nativity. I wrote it uh, about our final Christmas before I got fired in Port Alberni. The last Christmas we were all together hangs over memory like the fog did that year in the Alberni Valley. It was a time of gathering, two years and more of labor, summoning so many together, where once there were but a few, and it was a time of ending. The church stewards had warned me to expect an overflow crowd at the Christmas Eve service, and like overgrown elves, they had busied themselves around the building. Stringing wires and sound systems in the unheated auditorium kept that way to save money. The snows had come early, and our food bank was already depleted. With my eldest daughter, Claire, who was but five, I had walked to the church one morning in the week before Christmas, pondering the cold and the sermon, when I met the one who would pierce the fog for us. The woman stood patiently at the locked door, her brown, aboriginal eyes relaxing as we approached. Her bare hand gestured at me. You're that minister, ain't you? She exclaimed as my daughter Claire fell back and clutched my hand. Before I could answer, the stranger smiled and nodded, uh, and then uttered with noticeable pleasure at her double entendre, They say you give it out seven days a week. I smiled and gripped Claire's hand reassuringly and replied, if you mean food, we're a bit short, but you're welcome to whatever's left. She nodded again and waited until I locked the door and picked up Claire, who was clinging to me by then. The basement was even colder than the outside air, and the woman, but the woman doffed her, her overcoat and uh, sighed loudly as we approached the food bank locker. I'm sorry there's not more, I began, when I looked at the few things on the shelf, but she shook her head, and instead of saying anything, she looked at Claire, and the two of them exchanged a smile for the first time. I stared confused at the cupboard that was so bare. Finally, the woman said to me, The people in your church, you know what they need? And I set Claire down and shook my head. They need him. They sing about Jesus, and they pretend they know him, but shit, they wouldn't spot him even if he came up and bit him on their ass. (laughs) Well, I smiled at that one and even dared a mild chuckle. You doing a Christmas play for the kids? Yep. I bet it's the usual bullshit with angels and shepherds, right? Yep. But that don't mean nothing to those people. Why don't you do a story about, like, if he came to Port Alberni to be born right now? I laughed and felt oddly relieved. And she continued, my bet is he and Mary and Joseph, they'd end up sleeping in the Petrocan garage down a River Road. The owner there lets us sleep in the back sometimes. And then she was gone. Well, I didn't try explaining the stranger to anybody or what her words had done to me. All I did was lock the food cupboard and lead Claire up to my office, where I cranked up the heat and set her to drawing. And then I sat on my desk and wrote for the rest of the day. The kids in church were no problem at all when they looked at my play. They got it immediately. The Indians who were in the pews that Christmas Eve, alongside all the dour white folks, took to the amateur performance like they had written it themselves. They laughed with familiarity as the Holy Family was turned away by the local cops and hotel owners and by church after church after church. It was mostly the official Christians who were shocked into open-mouthed incredulity at the coming to life of a story they thought they knew all about. As the children spoke their lines, I swear I saw parishioners jump like there were tacks scattered on the pews. Joe, I'm getting ready to have this kid. You better find us a place real friggin' quick. I'm trying, Mary, but Jehovah, nobody will answer their door. I guess because it, it's where lives. Oh, no, look, there's a church up ahead. I bet they'll help us. Well, if you believe the Bible, whoever Jesus was loved to poke fun at his listeners and shock them out of their numbness and fog. Our play would have made him proud. As the eight-year-old girl who played Mary pleaded fruitlessly for help from a kid adorned in oversized clerical garb and was covered in scorn by the young priest, a sad moan arose from our congregation. But things took a turn when Mary and Joseph came upon an Indian played by one of the Native kids. Sir, will you help us? My wife's going to have a baby. Sure, replied the Native kid from experience. I got a spot in a shed behind the food mart. The owner lets us sleep in there all the time. And in a contrived scene of boxes and cans scattered where our communion table normally stood, Mary had her baby, at little homeless guys with fake beards, and a stray res dog looked on. And one of the men urged Mary to keep her newborn Baby quiet, lest the Mounties hear his cries and bust everyone for vagrancy. Voices were subdued that night in the church hall after the service over coffee, cookies, and Christmas punch, and the normal dull gazes and banal remarks were oddly absent. The Indians kept nodding at me and smiling, saying little, and not having to. The children were happy, too, still in costume and playing with the local stray who had posed as the Red dog. Dogs in the performance that would always be talked about. It was the white parishioners who seemed most pregnant that night, but they couldn't speak of it. It was one of my last services with them, and somehow they all knew it since we had all entered the story by then, because a churchly King Herod had heard a rumor and dispatched assassins to stop a birth and me even though by then it was already too late. My daughter Claire was not running and rolling with the other kids, but in her manner joined me quietly with her younger sister Eleanor in tow. Our trio stood there amidst the thoughtful looks and unspoken love as person after person came to us and grasped our hands or embraced us with glistening eyes. An aging Dutch woman named Oma Van Beek, who normally gave me only a slight nod after church, struggled towards me in her walker and pressed her trembling lips on my cheek. She said something in her native tongue as the tears fell from both of us. Well, later, when we were all scattered and lost, I would recall that moment like no other, as if something in Oma's tears washed away the filth and the loss that were to follow. Perhaps that looming nightfall touched my heart just then, for I gave a shudder as I looked at at my daughter's almost glimpsing the coming divorce, and I held them both close to me as if that would keep them safe and near to me forever. The snow was falling as we left the darkened building. kissing us gently as it had done years before, when as a baby, Claire had struggled with me on the toboggan through the deep drifts of my first posting in Pearson, Manitoba, on another Christmas Eve. The quiet flakes blessed us with memory and settled in love on all of creation, even on the Secret and Unmarked Graves of Children at the Local Indian Residential School. The old Byzantine icon a thousand years ago depicted Jesus as a baby. Hugging his worried mother as she stares ahead into his bloody future, her eyes turned in grief to the viewer, while his, his adoring eyes seek only her, past the moment, past even his own death. That image may still hang in the basement of my church, where I left it." That's called Nativity, and I like to read that to people every year, even though it's hard to remember and to read. But as I used to say to people in the talking circles, it's only when we open up and share our pain and share our scars that change happens first in us and then around us. We've got to have the courage to do that, folks. Remember that story of uh, Jesus appearing to his disciples, the the, uh, resurrection story? which you can take literal or as a metaphor, it doesn't matter, but what did he do to prove it was him? You show them the scars in the side, on his hands. That's how you know each other, by your scars, not by the nice words, not by the halos, by our scars. That shows us the nature of the world, like a soldier looking across the field of battle, realizing we've got to end this madness. It's up to each one of us folks to do that. And, it's an honor to be still alive, leading the struggle in the ways that I do. We need you all to step forward now. Time is running out. There's a limit. There's an expiry date on everything, including our ability to act, our lives, our mortal coils. And the, the door is closing in many ways. So it's now important to go beyond what you're used to, what you've grown up with, and realize you have to extend yourself and ask, what's happening right now? to the people like Maisie Shaw follow our work murderbydecree.com republicofcanada.org write to me angelfire101 at protomail.com join up our movement and extend it it's a wonderful moment in history when we have the opportunity to fundamentally change things but it depends on each one of you to take that step forward It's what I used to say in church It's what I say now it can't keep us down. Once we find that eternal light in us, that any amount of persecution and crucifixion can never take away, then we're not only powerful, but we can't be beaten. Overcome that fear. Take the step. That's the divine love at work on us, folks. Thank you. This is Kevin and Eagle Strong Voice. We're back next week at New Year, and there'll be a lot more, especially about the upcoming... Anniversaries, the 8th anniversary of the Republic of Kanata, January 15th, and much more to come. Until then, be strong, stay clear, and our final ending poem, song, hymn, whatever you like, is called The Ballad of the Carpenter, about our brother Jesus, by Phil Oakes, 60s folk singer who's murdered in the flesh, but his spirit lives on. Thank you, folks. Stay strong. We'll be back next week.
3: Jesus was a working man And a hero you will hear Born in the town of Bethlehem At the turning of the year At the turning of the year When Jesus was a little lad, Streets rang with his name, For he argued with the older men, And put them all to shame, He put them all to shame. He became a wandering journeyman, And he traveled far and wide, And he noticed how wealth and Live always side by side, live always side by side. So he said, come all you working men, farmers and weavers too, if you would only stand as one, this world belongs to you, this world belongs to you. When the rich men heard what the carpenter had done, To the Roman troops they ran, Saying, put this rebel Jesus down, He's a menace to God and man, He's a menace to God and man. The commander of the occupying troops Just laughed and then he said, There's a cross to spare on Calvary's hill. By the weekend he'll be dead, by the weekend he'll be dead. Now Jesus walked among the poor, for the poor were his own kind. And they'd never let them get near enough to take him from behind to take him from behind. So they hired one of the traders trade, and an informer was he, and he sold his brother to the butcher's men for a fistful of silver money, for a fistful of silver money. And Jesus sat in the prison cell, and they beat him and offered him bribes To desert the cause of his fellow men And work for the rich men's tribe To work for the rich men's tribe And the sweat stood out on Jesus' brow And the blood was in his eye When they nailed his body to the Roman cross And they laughed as they watched him die They laughed as they watched him die. Two thousand years have passed and gone, many a hero too. But the dream of this poor carpenter remains in the hands of you, remains in the hands of you.